I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, repair of eyelid retraction associated with Graves' disease. The patients did very well. Postoperatively, 86 patients achieved normal eyelid position. That's more than 80% of the patients. First this. What could be better than listening to world leaders in ophthalmology talking about important clinical issues using the on-demand power of podcasting? How about getting CME credit for it? I am psyched to tell you that you will soon be able to get continuing medical education credit for doing just what you're doing now. As seen from here, the first podcast for physicians is about to become the first podcast to offer its listeners CME. I'll have more to say about CME at the end of this podcast. As seen from here, all the quality of a national meeting every week on your MP3 player. By the way, now would be a great time to subscribe. Did you know that you can get every episode of As Seen From Here as soon as it comes out and without ever having to visit a website? It's called subscribing, and it's free. Each week, subscribers get As Seen From Here automatically loaded onto their iPods, MP3 players, and computers by using a program called a podcatcher. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the How Do I Listen button. Subscribing only takes a minute. Free podcatchers are available for Windows, Macintosh, and Linux computers. I put links to download an excellent podcatcher on the How Do I Listen page of asseenfromhere.com. Then, within hours of my podcasting an episode, you'll have it too. Lid retraction is a common manifestation of Graves' disease and can result in ocular irritation or frank surface decompensation from exposure keratopathy. Even when the ocular surface remains intact, the stare that lid retraction produces can be cosmetically disabling. The ideal surgical repair would produce an effective and consistent result. My guest today, Guy Ben Simon, described conjunctival Mueller muscle recession with levator disinsertion for the repair of lid retraction in the American Journal of Ophthalmology, a procedure he believes to be controlled and predictable. Dr. Ben Simon spoke to me from Melbourne, Australia. Basically, we started doing this work after a recent publication in the Archives of Ophthalmology that described a technique called full thickness uh, blepharotomy for eyelid retraction. Thyroid-related orbitopathy or Graves' disease is a common problem. I was coming from a center that dealt with that, uh, orbital center at the Jules Stein Eye Institute. Eyelid retraction is the most common problem in Graves. It's the most common ocular manifestation and it can cause some uh, discomfort to the patient because he cannot close his eye. It's what's called lagophthalmos. And then they may develop a dryness or a punctate epithelial erosions in the cornea. Plus, the cosmetic issue of eyelid retraction, which causes them like flare or scared or startled appearance. So patients are really interested in, in surgery to correct that. There is no other treatment modality besides surgery for that. So after I read the manuscript in the archives, which basically what they do is they make an incision in the eyelid and cut the full thickness incision in the eyelid and let the eyelid drop, which doesn't seem so controlled surgery. Uh, I wanted to describe our technique. We have there in Jules Steiner Institute a computerized medical record which makes any uh, retrospective study pretty easy because we basically can search any field of the medical record of each patient. We designed a retrospective consecutive case series 
of thyroid-related obitopathy patients with eyelid retractions who were operated solely for eyelid retraction by transconjunctival molar muscle recession and levator disinsertion. And once we gathered the information of the patient list, we took only the patients that had sufficient follow-up for the study. Guy, how many patients were studied? There were 78 patients, from them 15 males and 63 females, with a mean age of uh, 49. Overall, there were 107 surgeries on 78 patients, because 29 patients underwent bilateral surgery for both upper eyelid. And when we're conducting a study in ophthalmology, we have to uh, segregate between patients and cases, because if a patient is operated in both eyes, he will be considered two cases and, and not one. Done over what time period? Over a four-year period. And what were the main outcome measures for this study? The main outcome measure was uh, eyelid position, which was evaluated by the distance from the light reflex at the pupil to the lower margin of the upper eyelid. That measurement is called marginal reflex distance or marginal reflex distance 1, and it's measured in primary position. We have divided the patients into three groups, those with mild eyelid retraction, in which this MRD, or marginal reflex distance, is 5 or less. Normally, it's around 3 millimeters. And those with moderate, which is 5 to 7 millimeters measurement, and those with severe eyelid retraction, uh, which is uh, eyelid height more than 7 millimeters from the pupil margin, or MRD higher than 7 millimeters. That were the main outcome measures. Second outcome measure was symmetry between two upper eyelids, which defined the difference in one eyelid height less than one millimeter than the other eyelid. That's considered good symmetry. And the third outcome measure was patient's comfort or improvement in symptoms like dry eyes or lag of thalamus. Since lid retraction is a common finding in graves, and since not all of these patients require surgery, what were the indications for surgery in these patients? The medical indications is patient's discomfort or punctal epithelial erosion, which is small scratches on the corner, which do not respond well to ocular lubricants. Basically, what we have to offer to the patients is just superlative measurements with uh, artificial tears or ointment that the patient is still at night. Uh, other measurements that they can take care of themselves is putting saran wraps on the eyes, which basically putting like uh, paraffin oil around the orbits and sleeping with goggles at night, which keeps their eye moistened. And some patients have severe dryness with the corneal opacity, you know, corneal scars or even corneal erosions, and that can even become infected. So patients that cannot cope with that, uh, surgery is the only good solution that we can offer. The other main indication, because this study was based in Los Angeles, is cosmesis. Patients there, and as you know, most of the patients in the study are women, uh, they're really bothered by uh, their appearance. And eyelid retraction causes scary look, or what's called stare, especially the eyelid retraction laterally, which is referred to as flare. Patients are bothered by that even more so than the medical indication for surgery. And what are the treatment options for these patients? The treatment options, as I said, basically is ocular lubricants, which is artificial tears and ointments or gel at night. There has been some medical treatment like guanetidine, which is not successful. Other treatment options which are not surgical is injecting Botox 
to create uh, a droopiness of the eyelid, but this is not predictable, and this may also cause double vision because it can paralyze uh, the extraocular muscles. The only good treatment option is surgery, and surgery obviously can be done by several approaches and several techniques. Can you talk about what the different surgical options are? The, sur- the surgeries that were described for this type of surgery can be done first from anterior approach, which is eyelid crease incision, or from posterior approach, which is transconjunctival. Regardless of the, surg- of the surgical incision, we can release the Muller muscle, which is a band of sympathetic muscle situated underneath the levator muscle and attached to the conjunctiva. And this sympathetically innervated muscle elevates the eyelid in two millimeters normally. So if we remove that muscle or simply cut it, it may cause a droopiness of the eyelid in two to four millimeters. This is called Muller muscle recession. Other treatment option is just to incise or divide the levator aponeurosis. This is the main muscle that elevates the upper eyelid. So basically, we can disinsert it from the tarsus and leave some stripes of muscle or of aponeurosis that will keep the eyelid functioning. And that also can be done through anterior approach or posterior approach. Other techniques that were described is uh, doing myotomies to the muscle, is going further posterior in the orbit and cut the muscle belly and not the tendon. That can be done by just full thickness cutting but for some reason the muscle still works and people actually don't know why. Or doing zemiotomies, just cutting the, the edges of the muscle and by, by that elongating the muscles. For more severe cases, we can actually cut the aponeurosis to its full extent and put in a spacer. A spacer is uh, alloplastic material or material extracted from cadavers like pericard or alloderm, which is taken from a skin. And the spacer uh, serves as um, basically to elongate the muscle and make the eyelid more droopy. So these are for more severe cases. The most simple surgery that was described by Corniff is called full thickness blepharotomy, which basically is inciting the eyelid skin and then goes full thickness to the muscle, levator, aponeurosis, molar muscle, and conjunctiva. And you can adjust the position of the eyelid by the extent of the incision. Let's say one centimeter incision would drop the eyelid by uh, a fixed uh, number of millimeters. And if you want to make the eyelid even more droopier, so you extend your incision to 1.5 centimeters. This manuscript was uh, recently written in the archives, and that was initiated us to write our study. Basically, many people, what they do is just cut the elevator aponeurosis from the anterior approach, from the skin, because it's easier, easier to um, accomplish and it's easier to perform. Through the lid crease? Yeah, through the lid crease. But if you make too robust of a surgery, you can actually uh, create ptosis, complete ptosis of the eyelid if you disinsert the elevator aponeurosis to its fully extent. Regardless what type of surgery you're doing, one of the most important things is to divide the lateral horn of the muscle, which goes into the orbital rim the one that bisects the lacrimal gland, because this causes the flare or the lateral retraction, which is uh, more apparent in this patient. The eyelid is more retracted laterally, and for that you have to divide or disinsert the lateral horn of the levator aponeurosis muscle. Guy, can I have you talk me through your procedure? Yeah. Our procedure basically is a more delicate procedure, 
which tries to adjust the eyelid height without causing any uh, complication of ptosis or overcorrection. So basically what we do, um, we evert the eyelid using a, a Demar retractor and inject the conjunctiva superior to the tarsus because we want to inflate the conjunctiva and muscle. Then we make a conjunctival incision, and that can be done using a, a 15 blade or hot tip cautery. And we divide the conjunctiva from the mula muscle. We are actually creating a thin flap of conjunctiva and in, in a way that we can actually see the, the fibers of mula muscle. It's important to realize that even the muscle actually elevates the eyelid in only two millimeters. The muscle itself, its extent is at least 10 millimeters, so we can actually see that band. Now, from here, some surgeon would just cut the muscle to its full ex extent. What we try to achieve is to create a plane of dissection between the muscle and levator aponeurosis, and basically to remove a stripe of the muscle. I if we could achieve it by surgery, it would remove all 10 millimeters. Now, we would often evert the eyelid to its normal anatomic position during surgery, just to uh, see the, the height, the final height. This was like intraoperative adjustment of the eyelid height. If additional correction was required, we would evert the eyelid again and cut the levator aponeurosis. We deliberately uh, left some fibers in the center part of the eyelid to prevent ptosis. And so in this way, we had a reasonable amount of uh, intraoperative adjustment, and we could play a little bit with the eyelid height. That's why it was very important to perform most of surgery under local anesthesia with very low amount of anesthetic materials because that would change the eyelid position. Once we've done that and we divided the muscle or cut a strap of the muscle, we would take our scissors, which we use the Stephen Tenotomy scissors, blunt Stephen Tenotomy scissors, and we would fill the orbital rim, the lateral orbital rim, and simply dissect the lateral horn of the levator muscle. This was, as I said before, in order to uh, treat the lateral flare of the eyelid. And again, we would revert the eyelid to its normal anatomic position to see its final height, because that's what relatively difficult to achieve with surgery, but we managed to achieve that by repeated division of the lateral horn of the muscle. Once we've done that, we would left the conductible incision unsutured. We wouldn't give the patient any type of treatment, no, no ointment or no antibiotics. We would see the patient five days after surgery. Usually they would achieve the final eyelid height after uh, two to four weeks. After surgery, we, we can actually say that this is the final eyelid height. Did you have problems separating Mueller's from levator because of scarring in these thyroid patients? We had problems uh, dissecting the muscle from the aponeurosis, not much because of scarring, but more because it's really hard, uh, difficult plane of dissection. That goes also for the conjunctiva. That's why we use additional injection of local anesthetics on the operating table to try to create a plane between the conjunctiva and Muller muscle. These are two planes of dissection, conjunctiva, Muller muscle, Muller muscle, and levator, which are difficult to dissect. But when you use a hot tip cautery, handheld, so you can actually create and you can lift the conjunctiva in the air. And if you work slowly, you can create good plane of dissection. Because most of the cases, we had to divide the aponeurosis itself. So basically, this plane of dissection wasn't as important always. Of the 107 cases, Guy, how many patients got away with just Mueller surgery and how many required levator aponeurosis surgery as well? I would say most of the patients had at least some, some form of levator aponeurosis disinsertion because 
for all patients, we, we bisected the lateral horn of the, of the muscle. We actually didn't divide it in the groups because most surgeries were done in similar fashion that we cut at least several fibers of the aponeurosis. So basically, this surgery is described a combination of Muller and Levator aponeurosis dissection. What procedure was the Jules Stein group doing prior to this procedure? I would say before Dr. Goldberg arrived to Jules Stein, which was about 15 years ago, they used to do um, uh, anterior approach um, levator muscle disinsertion. Basically, you make eyelid crease incision, you expose the tarsus, and you divide the muscle from the tarsus, and uh, you just disinsert it from anterior approach, and you don't actually worry about Muller's muscle. And this is a surgery that is commonly used elsewhere. For example, here in Australia, where I work now, this is the only technique that they're using for eyelid retraction. But this, as I said before, can cause ptosis more often than Muller muscle, which is a, a more delicate procedure. Guy, are there patients whom this procedure is particularly suited for? I would say patients that main indications are cosmetics and have mild eyelid retraction, it would be better to do posterior approach Muller muscle recession. On the other hand, patients who have dermatocalasis or uh, would like to re- remove some preoperative fat or what's called upper blepharoplasty, which is also a fourth step in rehabilitation of, of thyroid patients, then I would say the anterior approach would be more suitable because in any way you have to cut the eyelid crease and, and make the incision on the, eyelid, on the eyelid skin, so there's no point of working on both directions. Uh, you can divide the levator aponeurosis from anterior. I know some people, even from Jules Stein, still do the anterior approach. But basically what we wanted to do is to compare our technique with uh, the full thickness blepharotomy, which seems um, a simple surgery, just cutting the eyelid to, from, from skin to tarsus to conjunctiva and just suturing the skin at the end, which seems to me a little bit uncontrolled surgery and not anatomic surgery. In these cases, are there any postoperative signs that you particularly look for, any flags that you're looking for postoperatively? Usually, if we had to reoperate on patients, it was from tourism. One, that we didn't, we didn't do it enough. We didn't cut enough muscle and there was residual retraction post-surgery. Usually, if you see it within one week, you know that you didn't uh, divide enough the surgery. So one, one to two weeks postoperatively can be a good flag that say this patient may need another surgery if he's interested in, because some patients have the trauma of surgery and they're not interested in. Another thing is patients may have reactivation of thyroid disease, of grave disease. It's not a common thing, but some patients are stable for a couple of months or even years after surgery, and then they appear with eyelid retraction again or with increased proptosis. And that most likely is due to uh, reactivation of the thyroid orbitopathy. And in this case, you cannot avoid reoperate on them. We had such a patient whom we operated upon, and eventually we had to put a spacer. We used a preserved human pericard in our upper eyelid just to make it droopy. It's a mechanical spacer, basically. But even with the spacer, she, she ended up with the severe eyelid retraction and severe thyroid orbitopathy with uh, strabismus and double vision. But uh, these are the two things. It's one, either you undercorrect and you would see it within a week after surgery, after all the swelling is going down, or there is a recurrence of the thyroid-related orbitopathy. In, in this case, you cannot avoid on reoperating the patients. Now, regarding consecutive ptosis or overcorrection, that may happen, but the rate is very low using the posterior approach because it's very hard to make the eyelid droopy below the level of the pupil if you leave at least some fibers of the levator aponeurosis behind. 
And that, that's, I think, the benefit of this surgery. It's very hard to overcorrect. One of the indications that you mentioned for surgery is punctate keratopathy. Yeah. Does it concern you that operating posteriorly that some of these patients are going to have a decreased production of tears? This issue has been published in the ophthalmic plastic reconstructive surgery a couple of years ago, but other investigators didn't repeat the study, and it is not known whether dissecting the conjunctiva on the superior edge of the tarsus actually decreases the basic tear production because it's known that the lacrimal gland is responsible for reflex tearing and the accessory lacrimal glands scarred within the superior fornix are responsible for basic tear production. But we never encountered this problem. This problem would be more of an issue when you do conjunctive omulorectomy to correct ptosis by basically removing part of the conjunctiva and molar muscle. And we never inc- and we did hundreds of cases like that for the past four years because that also will be published in the American Journal, we never encountered one aggravation of dry eyes. And in this case, we, what we do is just cutting the Muller muscle or Levada muscle, but we leave the conjunctiva intact. So it may be that we actually do not sever the basic tear production, but it, has, it wasn't examined by the study. And more patients had punctate keratopathy or exposure keratopathy preoperatively than patients after surgery. And most patients had subjective improvement in symptoms of dryness and dis- ocular discomfort. So it wasn't an issue, not clinically, and I don't think theoretically. Guy, how did your patients do in this study? Oh, the patients did very well. Like postoperatively, 86 patients had achieved normal eye disposition, which means MRD around 3.5 millimeters, and that's, that's uh, more than 80% of the patients. Whereas before surgery, uh, most patients had mild eyelid retraction or moderate eyelid retraction, which is between 5 and 7 millimeters. And only 20 patients achieved a mild eyelid retraction postoperatively. None of the patients had severe or moderate eyelid retraction postoperatively, which means surgery-wise we achieved our goals with more than 80% success rate uh, in the anatomic position of the eyelid. If we look whether patients are improved or worsened with surgery, we think that most patients improve in each category that we examine. If we take only the, the cases that were operated for mild added retraction, 78 of them, which is more, uh, almost 90% in that group, has improved. Patients with moderate added retraction, all of them have improved, 16 patients like that. There were only 10 patients in the study in which surgery didn't change the added position. They were either stable or worse. And this, as I said before, can be caused by two reasons. One, that we didn't operate enough, or that there was reactivation of the thyroid-related orbitopathy, and that represents the natural course of the disease. We cannot know that. Up to this date, there is no way of knowing that a patient actually has activation of the thyroid. There are clinical signs that might, may suggest that, like redness and, and swelling or conjunctival chemosis, but there's no way or there's no lab result or not imaging study that can tell you this patient has reactivation of the disease. So we can't tell why 10 patients didn't do better after surgery. Guy, what was the length of the follow-up in this study? Oh, it's 16 months plus minus 15 months. So it's uh, between 6 months and 84 months in the range would mean of 16 months, which is one year and four months, which is it is pretty good. I mean, the eyelid wouldn't change. What you see after one week to one month, basically, is the final eyelid position unless there is reactivation of the disease. This work, although a retrospective study, shows that you can achieve good eyelid position with conjunctival approach and conjunctival muscle recession, 
because people used to believe that this is not a good surgery and it cannot achieve good eyelid position because it doesn't lower the eyelid enough. But I think the addition of this insertion of the levator muscle, especially the lateral horn, which can be done posteriorly through posterior approach, makes the surgery at least as good as any surgery that's been described before, like the anterior approach or the full thickness uh, blepharotomy. Guy, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. Guy Ben-Simon is a fellow in orbital and oculoplastic surgery at the Royal Victoria Eye and Ear Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. His paper, Transconjunctival Mueller Muscle Recession with Levator Disinsertion for Correction of Eyelid Retraction Associated with Thyroid-Related Orbitopathy, is in press in the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Now more about CME. As seen from here is going to roll out its CME project in phases. Initially, you will need to print out CME quizzes and mail them in for grading. Then, a few months later, we plan to go to an all-electronic format in which you'll be able to take the quiz and print out your CME certificate right online. Each As Seen From Here program will get you one half hour of CME credit. The quizzes and certificates will cover blocks of four programs for a total of two credit hours. You can download any programs you've missed by going to asseenfromhere.com and clicking on the Programs button. As Seen From Here, all the quality of a national meeting every week on your MP3 player. Ask questions of Dr. Ben Simon or of any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States style, area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial, 020-7558-8275. Or Skype, JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.